And so you remember the context of this particular section of Scripture, and it continues. So let's read together John 8, 48 to 59. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? You see, slander is the attack against truth. They can't defend themselves truthfully against what Jesus is saying, so they're going to malign him. But Jesus, you see, is not troubled by this. He's not overcome by slander and attacks. He just marches right through with the truth, applying the truth to overcome any and all opposition. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory as they did, you see. There is one who seeks and judges. For truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, this precipitates another round of conversation. The Jews answered, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? That if they keep your word, they're not going to see death. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be the liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. <laughs> so the Jew said, what are you talking about? He says, you're not even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Remember, Abraham is that man who lived 1,800 or so years before this exchange. You're not even 50 years old, and you're going to tell us that Abraham saw your day? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And then they picked up stones to kill him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The climax of chapter 8 in the discussion concerning who are the children of God and what does God do to draw his children in? The climax comes when Jesus finally and clearly and probably most clearly through in the entire discourse of the Gospel of John, he clearly identifies himself and he says, before Abraham was born, before Abraham came into existence, I am. I am. You see, in saying this, I am. Jesus has succinctly and absolutely connected himself in unequivocally to the God of the Old Testament by saying ego ami, which is the Greek. Ego meaning I. Ami means to exist. By saying that, Jesus was pronouncing and declaring I am the great I am 
of the Old Testament. The I am who created. The I am who met with Abraham. The I am who met Moses in the burning bush. The I am who led the children of Israel out of the wilderness. The I am who opened the Red Sea. The I am who came down in thunder upon Mount Sinai with the law. The I am who freed the people into the promised land. The I am who established Israel as a great nation. The I am who all the way through history comes and is born as a little baby in Bethlehem. None other than the I am of the Old Testament. Let's stone him is their response. Let stoning. This morning, what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do is to, not an impossible task, because nothing is impossible with our God, but a very, at least for me, difficult task and challenging task. And so we're going to take These two verses, verse 51 and verse 58 of John. And we're going to apply them in perhaps a way that we haven't considered before. Father, Father, we always, always, always need your ministry. Your wisdom, your leadership. Father, would you be clearly and compellingly present in this word today? Father, would you guard all of our hearts from any misunderstanding whatsoever? even with the great probability that I may not say it clearly enough. Father, would you communicate it clearly and potently to our hearts? Father, would you manifest and magnify your word, this living man, this holy God who has given us eternal life in his death and resurrection? Father, be glorified today. For the bottom line of everything is your glory. The purpose of everything is that you may be seen to be great and majestic, honorable and wonderful in all your ways. Father, would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. In verse 51, Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, what word is Jesus talking about? Well, obviously, Jesus is talking about a lot of words. But the word that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to accentuate today and emphasize today is way back in the Old Testament. And if we will turn to Exodus chapter 20. Believe the word that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wants to emphasize today is that word which we see in Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
So if you'll be turning there because we're going to spend the preponderance of our time in those verses. By the way, Pharaoh, would you ask them to turn that thing on, please, that machine, that timer? Because without a watch, we will be here for a very long time. (laughs) Isn't this wonderful? What a gift they have given me. I haven't even begun yet. Isn't God good? Amen? So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. Look at how chapter 20 begins. Then God spoke these words saying. And notice how it begins. Then God spoke these words saying. And what does the quote say? How does it begin? I am. So what we have here is the very proclamation of this one who has come in the flesh years later to redeem his people through his death and resurrection. Years before, speaking to his gathered nation, as he descends upon the mountain and sits in the mountains of Sinai, Mount Horeb itself, and gives the people a proclamation of who he is, And what their relationship to him ought to be. As he lovingly and kindly and powerfully has delivered them from the house of bondage. And brought them unto himself into the wilderness. To constitute them as his holy nation. His peculiar people. A nation of priests unto him. And he delivers to them. The revelation of his character and of his mercy and of his goodness codified or put together in a systematic ten words. I am the Lord, your God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, as we look at the Ten Commandments this morning, we're going to go through this as fast as I've ever done anything in my life. It's going to be a very cursory look. But as we do so, I want to emphasize this. How many of us know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How many are confirmed in the fact that Jesus is the lover of our souls? How many know that? Would you raise your hand this morning? How many have any doubt whatsoever that Jesus is not for us and has not moved heaven and hell itself in order to redeem us through his death and resurrection? Anyone doubt that this morning? Does anyone doubt the goodness and the mercy and the kindness Of Jesus himself. So as we look at this word, what we typically fail to do, we typically want to look at the Old Testament as if that's that God who was really has a problem attitude. But thankfully, Jesus comes back years later and corrects it by disclosing 
the way God should be and in some way changes the attitude of this gruff and rough old man in the sky. That's often how we think. And yet Jesus' proclamation in John 8, 58 says, before Abraham was, I am. And so as we look at the law, as we consider this, as we study it, as we remember it, can we do so through the lens of the mercy and kindness and goodness of our God as demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ? Rather than seeing that over there and I'm over here in Christ and that is a problem for me. And I want to get away from that as far as I can. Because you see, Jesus says, if you obey my word, you will never see death. You see, the purpose of the commandments this morning in doing this is hopefully to give us a better understanding of the flow of the unity of the word of God within the structure of these ten words. You see, these are not just ten separate commands, but they are one continual command. There is a unified flow through the twelve. I'm sorry, ten. The twelve. Well, there, there goes a new... We have a new uh, doctrine this morning. The twelve commandments. How many of you remember this verse in John, uh, James 2.10? For whoever keeps the whole law, and yet you stumble just in one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. Now, how many of you have ever thought, now how can it be if I just break one commandment that I'm guilty of breaking all of the commandments? Now, how silly can that be? I've just broken one. I've just broken two. But how can I be guilty of everything? The reason is, is because you see, the ten words, as they are typically called and correctly called in the Hebrew, the ten words form a complete sentence. It forms a complete thought. It forms a complete revelation of the love of God. And so to stumble in one or to break one or to be deficient in one or to attack one, disbelieve one, is to destroy the whole, the whole thing. You see, the Ten Commandments are the result of God's grace. Do you remember God gave these commandments to constitute a nation, that they would be a nation of priests, a holy people, my own true personal possession. And I'm giving you this in order for your provision. It is the grace of God that moves him. Remember, the loving kindness of the Lord is all over the place in these commandments. Remember what Paul says about the law in Romans seven twelve. He says, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So as before we get into this, I want to take us and hold your hand in Exodus chapter 20. And let's go over and we're going to just read a few verses from Galatians chapter 3. And I think next week we're going to get a further application of this whole issue of faith and law and works and grace next week. So tune in next week and listen to the second half of the story. But you see, the law is good. But let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 26. But before, the law is good. What is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? For before faith came, before we believed in Jesus Christ, we were kept in custody under the law, in legal protection. 
And we were being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of the law? The law is given so all of those who are the children of God and who will become the children of God can be protected and maintained until God moves upon that person or those people to birth them into the kingdom so that the law may be our tutor, our revelation about our need of a Savior. You see, if we didn't know we needed a Savior, we would never have called out to Jesus and we'd all be going to hell in a handbasket. You see, because of our sin, God gave the commandment so we would recognize our need of a Savior. Paul's testimony in Romans 7, 7, he said, I would not have come to know sin. I would not have known I was a sinner except by the law. And so you see, for the redeemed of the Lord, the law is that great work of God's grace to bring us to the place of recognition I need a Savior. You see, rather than allowing the law to show us the Savior, the law by many have been thought to be a means to save. If only I can do this thing. If only I try. If only I change. If only I turn in over new leaves. And most of us, we don't need a new leaf. We need a whole new forest to be turned over. And you see, the law was never given as the means of salvation. Never given as the means of salvation whatsoever. You see, the law doesn't save. It points to the one who does save. As he himself perfectly keeps the entire integrity of the law. 3 Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Or it may be chapter 3. Let me make sure I didn't get to the wrong one. Yes, it is too. See, the law doesn't save. It points to the Savior. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. If you were here this morning and still believing that your background religiously, your background ethnically, your background culturally, your background in whatever. If you were still believing that there is any possibility that anything of that background and anything that you have done or will do saves you, please listen to these words. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we who have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works or the attainment or the means of the law or the trying or the being as, as sincere as you can or whatever it is, no flesh will be saved. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Thank God 
for the revelation of God's law. What about the law? I believe the law does two major things. I believe the law shows us God's love for us and God's love through us. So this is how we're going to divide the law this morning. The love of God for us in our personal relationship with God. The love of God through us in our relationships with others. That's how we're going to divide this this morning. Commandments 1 through 4, our relationship with God, a relationship of love. Commandments 5 through 10, our relationship with others, within and without the church. The love of God in me, through me to others. Remember what Romans 13, 10 says. And if you have any difficulties this morning understanding this, please get this verse when you come to the law of God. Love, therefore, is a fulfillment of the law. What is the law about? It is the message that God says, I love you. I love you. And this is how my love is walked out. You see, if we're not told, we're going to stumble along the way. If we don't have maps to get to a particular place, most of us don't have enough sense of where we're going to get there. We have to have a map. We have to have something to keep us on course as the Holy Spirit leads, leads us within ourselves. Remember in Mark 12, 28, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And he, he quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, and this is the fulfillment of that great revelation of who God is. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love the Lord your God. And then he brings in from Numbers another commandment. And he says, you shall love one another or your neighbor in the same way that you love God, that you are presently loving yourself with all the devotion that you have for yourself. And he says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. So let's get into the 10 words of Jesus in Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Commandment number 1, verses 2 and 3 in Exodus. So let's turn back to Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the great commandment. This is the great commandment. The first commandment is the umbrella or basis of all the rest. The great commandment is this. I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. That's the great commandment. What we see here in commandments 9, I'm sorry, 2 through 10, is an elucidation, an explanation, a referencing to how to live out God not being, us not having other gods. The great commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That is it. That's the law of God. 
Everything of the rest is dependent upon and references that commandment and expands upon and expounds that commandment so we will understand what it looks like to have no other gods before God. Because if God doesn't tell me, I'm not going to know and I'm going to fall. Do you see how good this is? Of God first to say, don't have any other gods before me because if He doesn't tell me that, I'm going to have other gods before Him and I'm going to hell because of that. But because of His goodness, He says, don't have any other gods before me because I, Yahweh, am God. And He says, this is what having no other gods before me looks like. Commandment number two. Here is the first issue of sin. Here is the very basis of sin itself. Every sin that we commit is as a result of the breaking of the second commandment. The first thing is, don't have any other gods before me. And then he says, and you shall not make unto yourself any idols or images of any kind, of any sort. Don't make any images. For you shall not make for yourself an idol or an image or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You see, it's the issue of worship. We were created to be worshipers of the true God. But our sinful propensity is this. To look for our satisfaction. To look for our needs. To look for our meanings somewhere else. To bring other things into my life that, well, I'm not actually replacing God. I'm just using this as a help to God. Well, anything that begins to occupy the devotion and the passion of my heart's love for God begins to be a seed of an idol. And if it isn't rooted out by the Holy Spirit, then it's going to grow and grow and grow until that becomes a replacement for God. Certainly not literally a replacement. I still believe in God. But I'm allowing the circumstances, the trials and the difficulties, the opinions of others, the way I am treated, the what I get, what I don't get, all of that which is about life that is unfair. I'm allowing all of that to begin to compete with God in my life. And the Lord says, don't create idols. Don't have that which is a substitute for me, or which is even in any competition with me. You see, every sin is rooted in idolatry. Every sin is rooted in something for or about me. Let me give you two definitions that are going to blow your minds this morning. 
pride, me. Humility, he. Pride, me. Humility, he. I get in the way. And I become the idol. I become the idol. You see, God saved us to be conformed to the image, the image of His Son. Anything less to God is idolatry. To reject Jesus, to doubt Jesus, to not pursue Jesus, to ignore Jesus. All of this is creating a graven image in our heart. You see how good the Lord is to show us how easy it is and how subtle it is to begin to live a life of idolatry. And if he allows us to do so, it's going to swallow us up. But God's goodness through the revelation of this word of his begins to carefully show us from the inside out if we are believers or from the outside to us if we're not in Christ that we are in danger of losing the joy and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to an extent that we're going to suffer but mostly that God himself and his glory is going to be revealed in a diminished way in us, which is the biggest problem. Commandment number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave you unpunished who takes his name in vain. Thank God I've never used GD. You know what I mean by GD? Taking the name of the Lord in vain. Oh, well, I know what that means, GD. Yeah. Well, certainly GD is in there, but that's not what this is talking about. You see, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any images. Don't let anything substitute or begin to even compete with me. When the competition and the substitution begin, then we begin to lead a life of vanity and foolishness and uselessness. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Meaning, don't live uselessly and vainly. Because to create an idol or to allow any substitute of competition will begin to produce useless, vain, unproductive, in a godly sense, life. Idolatry leads to a life of vanity or futility or uselessness to God. You see how this progresses. It's not just three commandments this morning. We've talked about one commandment and these two have already begun to show us our relationship to that commandment. And how kind of God to show us if you do this you're going to deviate and don't do this. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you what is happening and let Him show you if there is an idol and show you where your life is being lived in a foolish way. You see, idolatry leads to a diminished view of God. 
We think carelessly about him. He's not the number one thought in our life. Eh, I think of God when I go to church. I think of God when the difficulties come. As a result of idolatry, it's beginning to be a futile life. We're living vainly when we use God as a means to get what we want. When we begin to disrespect His Word by not really believing it fully. When we pray without really believing. When we presume, presume that all religions are okay with God. And it doesn't really matter. All roads lead to, you know, lead to the same place. Well, let me tell you something. All religious roads do, in fact, lead to God. Who declares all except in Christ to be null and void. You see, they're all going to lead to God because we're all going to stand before the Lord no matter what religion. And the only truth is going to be those who are in Christ or pleasing to God. To assume a person is saved when he's not saved is taking the name of the Lord in vain. To incorrectly teach the gospel is taking the name of the Lord in vain. The character of who God is and all about Him. To add any form of works to grace takes the name of the Lord in vain. See, we need to have an expansion on what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. It means a whole lot more than just not saying certain curse words. It means our life and our relationship with God needs to be such imbued with the Holy Spirit and us being motivated and empowered by God's love and grace so that our lives are a clear display of the grace and the goodness of God. Otherwise, what we're doing is taking His name in vain. We are assuming on Him. We're saying something about Him which is not true. To live any way other than by grace motivation and grace empowered for the glory of God takes the name of the Lord in vain. Number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The rest is a delineation of how that works. Well, Sabbath keeping. What in the world, you know, Sabbath keeping? You remember when you read Genesis, the account of God creating the heavens and the earth, and finally... Adam and Eve are created at the end of the sixth day. And the Lord said, after having created man, it is very good. Finally, God has on the earth these two beings who will display who he is and how he is. They are created at the end of the sixth day. And what does God do? He sits down, if you would. And he ceases from all of his work, which Hebrew says, and he rests on the seventh. His work of creation is over. Man is created to literally begin his life and his relationship with God within the context of the seventh day of God's rest, the great Sabbath. That's what this is. We are created 
Not to live under our own steam and for our own purposes. Motivated by self. Being dominated by sin and Satan unto death. But we were created to be those people who would be constituted and living in the very rest, if you would, the relaxation, if you would, the chilling out of our God Himself. In the completed work of God, He has completed the work. There is no more work of creation and salvation that needs to be done. We are to now rest in what He has already done. You remember the Sabbath is certainly a day in the Old Testament, but it was a day that Adam braided a person that looked forward to a person being the fulfillment of that day. What does Jesus say? I am the Lord, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is in His person, in His work, the fulfillment and the embodiment of all that the Sabbath rest is all about. Remember out there the plaque. What does it say? Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to work the deals. You're trying to some way get through life. You're trying to make sense of it. All of you who labor and are heavy burdened or laden, come unto me and I will give you can't hear you. Rest unto your souls. Freedom from sin's destructive work and hell itself. Rest. Jesus Christ is the very rest of God. You see, we are living in the seventh. For this is the day which the Lord hath made. What day? The day of God's resurrection from the grave through Jesus Christ. This is the eternal day of God's Sabbath forever. The only difference is it changes venue and it changes its context when we all die and when we have a new heaven and earth. But it's already, we're already in the rest of God, the seventh of God. We're already living in the great day of the Lord. Amen? Do you believe this? Oh, happy day! Oh, happy day! When Jesus washed my sins away. Amen? This is that day. What a God to show us this through this great word of His. Aren't you glad God gave us this word? How do we keep the Sabbath? Well, you keep it not by trying to go to church on Sunday. Not by not working too much on Sunday. Not by worrying whether it's Saturday or Sunday. But you keep the rest by remembering 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify. What does it mean? Keep as holy. Keep as holy the Lord Christ in your hearts. He says, don't break the Sabbath. Keep it. What does that mean? It means sanctify the Lord Christ or Jesus as Lord in your hearts. And as we do that, we are living keepers of the Sabbath. Why? Because He who is the Lord's Sabbath Himself lives in us and we in Him. Number five. Verse 12. 
You shall honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Honor your mom and them. Now, for those of you who are not from New Orleans, you don't know what that means. Mom and them means your family, your folks. Your daddy. Honor your mama and your daddy. What is this? The Lord brought the people out of the house of bondage. And he says to them, he says, you're my family. You're my family. You're my children. And he says, oh, how I love you. And he says, I will shower you with every gift that I have in Christ. I will withhold no good thing from you. Why? Because I love you. Because I love you. Relationally, preeminently, the family is singularly, I think, the best demonstration of the community within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're the family of God. And because we're the family of God, those who are in Christ, God is our heavenly Father. And so when God says, have no other gods before me, it means that we are to give Him as our heavenly Father the honor and the respect, the devotion and the joyfully loving obedience that He deserves because of who He is and because of what He's done. And how is that to be displayed in a very practical and daily way? It's to be displayed within the context primarily of the family. To be treating our parents and those in authority over us in our families and within the society in a way that God is declared to be honored and is shown to be our heavenly parent. Honor your father and your mother is again the earthly expression of honoring our heavenly father. And to the place that we live that way, under the leadership of His Spirit, we're not doing it to get, we're doing it because we have been gotten. And as we do that, we are displaying to the world, especially to this world, which has such a diminished and demonic view of marriage. We're displaying to the world, oh yes, we unique. Oh yes, we different. Oh, yes, we're the minority. Today. Today. But there is coming a day when we will be the majority in heaven forever. Amen? Oh, yes, we're the minority today. We're the weird ones. We're out of step. Thank God we're out of step. Thank God we're out of step. For to be in step with the world is a march right into hell itself. So be out of step.
show people who God is and how much He means to us in our relationships within the family context, within the church, within your workplace. So we're to honor by giving reverence and respect. And as we do this, what God is after is our honoring Him as our divine parent. So the first four commandments, the first one being the commandment itself, number two, three, and four, are the expression and the activity and the revelation of what it means within our con- the context of our relationship with God to have no other gods. To have no other gods means what? We won't allow anything or anyone to compete with God. No graven images. Amen? Secondly, by holding God as the only true God in our lives, we will not live a life of foolishness and vanity and wastefulness. Amen? And third, what's the next one? We will do what? Keep the Sabbath. Am I did wrong with my numbers? One to four, two to four, sorry. We will keep what? The Sabbath. How do we keep the Sabbath? We keep the Sabbath because the Sabbath is keeping us. Can you say amen? I keep the Sabbath every day of my life because I am being kept in Him who is the Sabbath of God. And finally, within this context, honoring our parents, honoring those in authority because we're honoring God as a heavenly parent. Now let's turn... Verses, sorry, uh, commandments 5 through, uh, what is it? What's the rest of them? 10 through, 6 through 10. I'll get it one day. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm just getting this. Matt helped me out a lot about which ones are the commandments. And so I'm getting it, Matty. Commandments 6 through 10. The last five commandments, I'm going to ball them together and not deal with them individually, if that's okay with you. Oh, I know some of you really want me to deal with some of these. Who, if only he would get that one, because my spouse needs to hear that one. (laughs) The last five commandments reveal God's love for us in the way we relate to others. Listen to what 1 John 4 says, 4.11. Dear friends, he says, since we love God, how many of us say we love God? We love God, amen. You know why we love God? Because he first loved us. And gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He first loved us. For this is love. Not that we first loved him. He first loved us. So, since we love God, since we say we love God, how do you know you're loving God? I need to know that I'm loving God. I need to know that it's just not an emotion or feeling. But it is a very practical life that I'm living That is as the result of the feelings and the emotion and the intimacy causing me to reciprocate in the same love with which I have been loved into His kingdom. And how do I know it? I begin to love the brethren. I begin to find that I'm actually beginning to love you. Maybe not like all of you, but at least to love you. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
So we take this last group of commandments, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. There are five of them there. Okay. And we divide them into two groups. 6 through 9 are the external activities, those things that we see and experience and go out from us. And number 10, the internal, the thing that drives them. The thing that drives them, you see, because something has to drive what we're doing. Something is causing us to do what we're doing. What are those five? Let's look at them. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. Bear false witness. Why do we do those things? Well, we do them because we mean. We just mean. Sin is mean. But why do we murder? Why do we do what? Commit adultery. Why do we steal? Why do we lie? Because you see, if we're not keeping God as God, as a result of idolatry and foolishness of living, we begin to descend into the pit of me and life begins to be for me, about me, and I begin to be driven by number 10, coveting, wanting. Who I am and what I want is more important than anything else in all the world. How much of our tears and our feelings and our upsetness and whatever it is are purely the result of covetousness. You know, I wish someone in the hierarchy of this nation would just say it right. We're in the mess we have today because of covetousness. Because of what? Greed. Amen? Somebody ought to say something of the truth. Say it for what it is so that we hopefully can begin to repent of the root problem and not just take care of the fruit on the trees. You see, we're still not taking care of the root by doing what we're doing. And I understand we have to do things. We're taking care of the fruit. But the root is greed. And until we take care of greed, which is only by the overcoming power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit is always going to be a mess. You see, when life becomes me, the me in me becomes an idol, and that me must be obeyed, resulting in my having to have my way, covetousness. And I'm driven to do whatever it takes to get my way. Listen to this word from James chapter 4, 1 through 3. Listen as I read. What is the source? Why do you guys quarrel and fight? Why are you so upset? Why do you argue? Why do you contest with one another? Why are you butting heads? Why don't you just agree and get along? He says, what's the matter with you? He said, is not the source your pleasures, your covetedness, what you want that wage war in your members? You see, there is a fight within us. It's the fight to either love me 
or to love God. It's a struggle. That's the only struggle we have. The struggle of my having ascendancy and priority or in my giving ascendancy and priority to Jesus Christ. There's the struggle. And the Ten Commandments reveal the the landscape of the struggle and also point us to the one who saves us from being overwhelmed and devoured by ourselves by dying and forgiving and then living himself in me so that myself may begin to be imbued with the goodness and the holiness and the mercy and the kindness of himself so that I may be able to be set free from the bondage of me to live in the freedom of he. He says, you lust and you don't have. You see, covered in this strong desire, epithumia, lusting. So that you commit murder. Maybe you physically kill, but you certainly kill with attitudes. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. The problem is me. It's not my wife. It's not Keith, well, it's not Keith Collins. It's not Bill Treby. Nancy sitting there, I don't know about that. You don't know Bill. You know, it's, it's not my mom and them. It's not anybody. It's not Barack Obama. It's not George Bush. It's me. Go home and look in the mirror and you say, I've seen the enemy. The me of the flesh. And he's us. Now look. We now see that the Ten Commandments are one divine sentence. Declaring who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. Now, let's remember a few things. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore... What word? I can't, I can't, I'm hard of hearing, I'm real hard of hearing. There is therefore what? Now, either you raise your voice, I raise mine. There is therefore what? Now. There is therefore when? Please get it. There is therefore now. No condemnation. Katakrima. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We didn't say there's no condemnation for anybody. We said for those who are in Christ, there is therefore when. Now, not when we get to heaven. We are in heaven today. We're just going to change the context of heaven. We're heavenly people when. Now, the wilderness has been changed into the Garden of Eden for us by the Holy Spirit. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. If you have heard today any condemnation from this word and you are in Christ, you are listening to the Holy Spirit incorrectly. In fact, you didn't even hear the Holy Spirit. You heard another spirit. Because if you are in Christ, the law and all of its requirements have been completely, utterly, forever, and fully kept by one man. The law has been finally, forever, and fully been kept by one man. All of the condemnation that we deserved because we were sinful. All of the judgment, all of the wrath of God. May I repeat those words? All, all, all has been summed up, poured out upon and has been completed forever in this one man. So in John 19, verse 30, what does it say? Everybody knows it. It is finished forever. And when this great man said, it is finished, I declare that all of hell must have fallen apart at those great words. For all the power of hell itself crumbled when those words were spoken, the curtain of the temple rent from top to bottom and hell itself vanquished forever as to its ability to destroy us who are in Christ. It is a victory of the Son of God over everything and everyone and whatever that is opposed to the glory of God as Father. Remember Romans 8.1. Remind yourself of Romans 8.1. Memorize Romans 8.1. Because the more you know that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, the more your heart will be able to listen to the Holy Spirit's leading and convicting and correcting and guiding and, prov and providing work so that when you hear all of that, you can receive it with great joy knowing this. He's not trying to condemn me. He's already, Jesus already paid that price. He is lovingly helping and maturing and protecting and providing for me. When I taught English, I did something that none of the other teachers had done. That's typical of me, I suppose. What I learned in the, as I was teaching this, it's okay, Matt? Man, I saw the guy leaning forward. You know, I'm touching his piano. You want to hear me play? No, no. What I learned was this. What I was learning was this. When I was a teacher of English, I was seeing this, that the students, hopefully wanting to learn for the right reason, but really wanting to learn to please the teacher or to get better grades or to protect themselves from mean mamas and all that, the students were struggling to learn because, you see, they were being preoccupied with grades and accomplishments and assessments and goals and all of that. All of that was bearing down upon them in such a way that it was getting in the way of them having the freedom and the joy and the desire to learn. 
I wasn't interested in people making A's and B's. I wanted them to be able to speak correctly, to write correctly, to be able to read and understand and enjoy things. So I did something very unusual. I said, this particular class, we're going to give no grades in your consciousness. I'm going to know the grades you won't. Trust me. Now, that made him upset and nervous. Why? Think about it. How can we learn without grades? Come on. Come on, some of you mamas and daddies who are so into grades that you're stymining and smothering your children's learning. 20 years from now, it will not matter whether your baby was a valedictorian of the class. It will only matter if that child knows how to read and learn and develop and has freedom to go where God wants that person, that child to go. So we gave no grades for that whole semester. I kept the grades. You know what I saw? I saw a diminishing of the preoccupation of grades. And as the grades began to wane and not be on the horizon, these girls, all girls high school, these girls began to become more and more relaxed. And as they relax as to the requirements of the course, that external thing that was upon them, they began to, in a much more willing way, I don't have to attain a grade, I'm not trying to protect a grade, began to learn. And at the end of that time, it was a class called composition development, paragraph development, we were able to go into the last couple of weeks into what is called expository writing. We went beyond all the other classes. You know why? Not because Peter Davidson is such a wonderful teacher, but because the students saw something greater than the external grades. Something on the inside changed. You see, the law used to be out there. And it used to tell us how we're missing it. And we were. You see, we were missing it severely as to the love of God. And the law was condemning us, which we should have been condemned. But the law came in a man. I should have heard a shout on that. You're all way too passive. You're way too passive. The law came in a man. The law came in a man. Jesus says, I have not come to what? Destroy, but to what? Fulfill. Every dot and comma. Nothing left out. The law came in a man who perfectly kept it. How do I know he perfectly kept it? Because when he died, he rose again. How do I know he perfectly kept it? Because when he died, he what? Death, hell, and the grave could not keep this innocent, perfect man. The law came up with him.
personified, living and vibrant in all of its glory. And when that great man ascended into heaven, he says, I will send to you the spirit of truth. I will send to you the Holy Spirit who will live in you and who will bring to you all the remembrance of all that I have spoken, who begins as he lives in us to change me on the inside by wooing and winning my affections with his love. And as he woos and wins my affections by his love, I find now in Christ that I can reciprocate in love to him. I have never, may I repeat that word? I have what? Never, never been able to keep the least commandment at any moment. I've never been able to do it, and I've stopped doing it years ago. I've stopped trying to obey God years ago. Now I cooperate with the Holy Spirit, who is the living God in me. And as I have tried, and I have stopped trying to obey Him, I now rest in His presence and work in me. So that in me, He begins to form and fashion and produce the very law-keeping, the reality of what it means to have no other gods except Yahweh Himself, the great I Am, Jesus Christ. And I find that within me, hope you don't mind my saying that, but every one of us in Christ should be able to say the same thing, that in me, God is producing the reality of the keeping of His holy law by the Holy Spirit as I cooperate with Him. Love motivated, love empowered. You see, we now obey the law of God's love, not to get, but because we are begotten. Not to get, because we are now gotten. Now we obey, not to become children, but because we are the children of God. The gospel of Jesus' salvation has set us free. Free from sin and self and Satan has set us free to experience God's love so that we can and that we will. That I can and that I will lovingly respond in obedience to ple in pleasing God and giving Him the glory. This is the life that honors God. The life that says, my law, my revelation of who I am and how I am, no longer is out there pushing you down. A Savior has come. Completely kept the law. In Christ, each one of us has kept the law already. In Christ, each one of us has already kept the law. In Christ, each one of us has already kept the fullness of the law. Do you agree with that? You see, if you hesitate, you worry too much about what you got to do. Come on. In Christ, each one of us has already kept the full law. If you hesitate and worry about it, you're trying to figure out what you got to do. Come on.
And it frees me to be able to stumble and fall and falter so that the reality of what I have done in Christ or what He has done in me, however you like to say it, or what has been done, therefore I have been infused with this, having done it, so that the reality of it having been done is infused in me and I can begin to experience the actual reality of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ Himself by the Holy Spirit who leads me. Can you say amen? amen? As Keith comes up, you know he's coming up. <laughs> Couldn't hold me back either. <clears throat> in the book note, we have about a hundred of these. It's the Ten Commandments. You like to get one and frame it and put it up in your house? Be better than a whole lot of other stuff we usually frame and put up in our houses. Go ahead and grab one. We'll give them to you. They're in the book nook. Aren't you glad that God has loved us enough to give us his holy revelation through the law? Amen. Amen. You coming up? Let's give God a hand before he comes up. Amen. It's not over yet. Don't leave. We're not finished. I'm only coming up because he said I was coming up. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, your word is described as that which is deep and it calls to something deep in us. And Lord, if we are here today and trying to get our minds around concepts, sometimes in just one message, uh, Lord, that's, that's not what one message is intended to accomplish. Lord, one message builds upon other messages. One message stirs us and affects us and draws us to a deeper place. God, I pray that that's the effect today. And I pray that we are being drawn into a place of analyzing how do I handle feelings of condemnation? Lord, how do I feel about measuring up? Lord, do I really find moments of giddy rejoicing in the thought that all that is required of me has already been accomplished? Lord, does, does that cause celebration in my heart? Lord, do I feel a greater sense of release by that truth being present in me than if I got news today that I had won the lottery and could pay all my bills? Lord, I know I'd rejoice over that. God, I know I'd be excited to to have the weight of debt lifted off of me or the, the ability to be free from that which is required of me or all things that I must perform to now be able to pay for them to be accomplished Lord, instantly a chunk of money would bring rejoicing into my life. But yet, I can listen to the message just preached and walk out of here feeling the weight of my life still. Oh, Lord, keep us from being a people who think we get it, but we really don't get it. Lord, the sad truth is there will be many who will walk out these doors today without rejoicing. 
Lord, we didn't hear something that made us leap for joy. The weight is off of us. The demands are over. God, sincerely, you have set us into a place, a wide open place of freedom and joy in you. And yet, Lord, perhaps today we were simply introduced to that. Lord, may it be that we are not content to stand at the door, but we desire from this message to rush into the implications of what we've heard. God, to experience it, to have your word, which is deep, call to that which is deep in us. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for stirring. Thank you for drawing us in, God, opening our eyes further. Lord, blind us with the truth of this word that we might truly and sincerely experience the joy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.